Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Joining me today is Phil Bellinger from the Griffith University Gold Coast campus. Uh, Phil's a lecturer there in the sports and physiology department. And the reason he's on the show today, the reason I asked him to join us was to talk about a couple of topics. Originally, I was uh, really curious about some work that, uh, that Phil's done in uh, muscle type testing and uh, the ramifications of uh, of muscle type distribution within different athletes, um, and then that came that led me down a rabbit hole as it usually does <laughs> into some of the work and some of the studies that he's done in uh, in and around uh, overreach, uh, which um, has some very specific definitions which we'll we'll get into. So uh, you know, I got got in touch with him, and uh, we set this up. So Phil, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, coming on the show. Yeah, no worries. Looking forward to having a bit of a chat today. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a lecturer at Griffith University on the Gold Coast in Australia, which is on the the east coast. So the sun's always shining here, which is really nice. Um, and, and <laughs> don't rub it in right now, as we're headed into like a cold <laughs> lockdown winter in in most so, of North America. <laughs> sorry, that was a bit brutal for me, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, part of my role at the university is to uh, conduct research and um, a big interest for me is performing research with, with top level athletes here on the Gold Coast. And I guess some of those specific areas of research that I'm interested in is some of the individual responses to training, particularly in endurance athletes. So working a lot with middle distance runners, uh, cyclists and triathletes and trying to understand a little bit more about those individual responses to training, which, uh, yeah, constantly puzzle us as applied researchers and also coaches as well. So trying to understand a little bit more about why people have different responses to, to the same sort of training plan. Yeah, a hundred percent because, uh, listeners, as I'm sure you appreciate, you've, uh, you've probably been through, through training cycles where you've made, you know, significant strides and others where you've made less significant strides maybe and uh and it's always a it's always um you know a question of why does something why does a certain type of uh of intervention work with one group of folks and not another and it's a very you know it's certainly a very complicated question and this is something that uh we'll we'll at least dig a little bit into uh, during this chat today so um phil let's start with uh your your studies on overreaching um first of all I think uh, it makes sense to define overreaching. I think maybe some people have heard the term before and some have not. Um, most people probably have heard the term overtraining. So is overreaching the same as overtraining? What are the differences? And then, yeah, let's uh, let's start there. Yeah, so I guess it forms a little bit of a uh, continuum. And when we're mm-hmm. talking about overreaching, we're just referring to a short-term uh, decrement in performance that manifests from an increase in in training load so when we're talking about training load it's really the product of training volume so how much you're training uh, and also your training intensity so how hard you're training and the product of those two variables really equates to our training load and there's many different ways to to quantify training load but typically when we have an increase in training load beyond a particular level 
we might get a short-term decrement in performance, but then after a short duration taper, our performance will either restore to that baseline level or sometimes we see a, a super compensation effect where we get an increase in performance. And how is that different from overtraining um, from that term? And overtraining is kind of a very broad and nebulous term, at least in my experience. Yeah, so overtraining or the overtraining syndrome is actually pretty uncommon. Oh, okay. Um, but that refers to more so a very chronic uh, decrement in performance. And that's commonly associated with uh, other types of hormonal disturbances. And we often don't really see overtrained athletes too frequently but uh, when we have, or when an athlete is uh, diagnosed as overtrained, they typically need a medical practitioner to perform some blood tests hmm. and typically measuring some different uh, hormones in the blood. But yeah, really overtraining syndrome refers to a very chronic uh, decrement in performance where it might take uh, months or even up to a year for performance to restore wow. to baseline levels and more importantly uh, for health uh, to restore to um, to uh, a healthy state, I guess, for that particular athlete. But we don't typically see overtrained athletes too frequently. And often it's, um, I guess, a number of different factors that can contribute to overtraining. So it's not just high training loads. It sometimes might be an athlete that could be under eating. Um, it might be an athlete that's not getting enough recovery or uh, not getting enough sleep. Uh, so, yeah, there's a number of different factors that go into the overtraining syndrome and typically uh, that's where you see some quite detrimental effects on an athlete's health. Um, but, yeah, the overreaching state isn't necessarily a bad thing because athletes need to train hard in order to induce a supercompensation effect. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess overreaching would be considered uh, desirable but this is where it does get a little bit tricky because there are <laughs> yeah experience. this is this is where this is where um, there's there's definitely a little bit of nuance. But before we get there, let's uh, let's talk about some uh, some signs and symptoms. So if you're you know if you're uh, an everyday athlete maybe who has certainly access to some of the typical metrics, uh, both subjective and objective, um, what are some of the signs that you're looking for to see that maybe you are reaching that uh, overreaching state? Yeah, so um, the research is a little bit mixed uh, in this space and unfortunately there aren't okay. really any uh, clear differences in most subjective and objective markers of training stress. So when we're talking about subjective markers of training stress, then that's typically perceptual markers of fatigue and how an athlete might be feeling. Mm -hmm. The objective markers are things that you could uh, measure. So maybe you might be measuring the heart rate response to exercise or you might be measuring something in the blood or you might be measuring VO2 if you've got an athlete in the lab. But sometimes uh, we don't see clear differences in some of these markers between athletes that are being pushed into an overreach state by an increase in training load and other athletes that have also increased their training load but their performance uh hasn't dropped off yet. So that's hmm. why we use that performance marker as our, right. I guess, our diagnostic tool to differentiate athletes between being in what we might term an acutely fatigued state where they might have increased perceptual levels of fatigue, but their performance is still maintained. And if you compare that to an overreached athlete where their performance might be starting to um, decline, they may actually have the same uh, I guess, perceptual or subjective markers of fatigue, 
and also some other things that you can measure like the heart rate response to exercise might also be uh, changing uh, the same between these two athletes. So sometimes it's a little bit tough to differentiate and we always, um, I guess, segregate these athletes post hoc. So that's why we uh, might have, say, a three-week block of hard training and then after that three-week block, we'll get the athletes to do some type of performance test. might be an incremental treadmill test or it might be a test out on the running track, a time trial. And uh, we can differentiate between athletes after the training block, um, but unfortunately there aren't too many markers of training stress that we can look at uh, that might be able to, uh, I guess, predict or highlight an athlete that might not be responding to training that well and being pushed into that overreach state. Yeah, because I in your in your study, I noticed I noticed you say that um, in submaximal uh, exercise bouts, there isn't very much of a difference between these two categories that you just clarified the the acutely fatigued and the the overreached folks, right? Yeah, not systematically. So there are some markers that you can look at, um, and I guess the key point is you never just look at one marker to tell you all the information that you need. So uh, some other studies in this space that have um, had some athletes do a, a control block of training and then increase their training load for a period of re- uh, for a period of weeks. And some of this research comes from a, a French group um, of researchers, and, and typically the lead researcher here is is Jan Lemure, who's also a triathlon uh, coach. Okay. And some of their research has shown um, that a metric known as your heart rate recovery in response to submaximal exercise can differentiate athletes between being overreached and those that are just acutely fatigued and still responding to training quite well. Okay. Can you talk about heart rate recovery? What does it mean and, and uh, how would how would one use it? Because I think most of us have access to at least heart rate monitors. Yeah. So the heart rate recovery is basically the magnitude of your heart rate recovery as soon as you stop exercise. So this can be done after, say, a five-minute block um, of submaximal exercise. If you've got a um, triathlete that's jumping on the bike, you want to make sure you've got pretty standardized uh, conditions. So it'd be nice to do this test on a, on a wind trainer at home if you've got a power meter on there or some device to measure power. Sure. And you would cycle at a submaximal power output. So let's just say that might be 200 watts um, for an okay cyclist. And they might cycle at that intensity for five minutes. Then after that five minute period, they'll be monitoring their heart rate and they'll take note of what their heart rate was at the end of that five-minute period. They'll stop cycling, just sit on the bike, nice and relaxed, and then they'll see how much their heart rate recovers. So they'll just take their end exercise heart rate, take that away from their heart rate after one minute of recovery, and mm-hmm. that um, value there is known as their heart rate recovery. And what oh, actually, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so what actually happens when athletes get pushed into an overreach state they actually have a faster heart rate recovery. So it drops down much faster oh. than if, if an athlete wasn't. Now the key I would thing, assume it's the other way around. That's interesting. Yeah, okay. yeah. So the key thing there is that um, that's also a sign of an increase in fitness. You know, these athletes can jump on a bike, cycle, <laughs> sure. and their heart rate recovers really quickly. So that's why these measurements need to be taken in consideration of the actual uh, training phase. But the physiology behind this is that um, their heart rate would recover a little bit faster. And that's just due to probably one of two factors. 
either a decrease in the central command, so some of those brain centers that are controlling your heart rate response, mm-hmm. or by a lower chemoreflex activity. And that's sort of linked in with some of the hormones that your body will release when you start exercising and that stimulates your heart rate to increase. So that response might be dampened and that's why your heart rate jumps back down a little bit quicker when you're overreached. Interesting. But um, typically if an athlete is overreached and they've got a faster heart rate recovery, they're also going to be feeling a lot more fatigued as well. So that's why you need to take into consideration some of these subjective markers with an objective marker, which would be considered um, heart rate recovery. Okay. The handy thing is um, with that is that you see the same responses uh, following submaximal exercise as you do with maximal exercise. So if you've got a fatigued athlete, you don't want to be asking them to do, you know, really hard maximal exercise tests every week just to monitor how they're responding to training so this <laughs> yeah this, that, that, would, yeah. that wouldn't really help them long term would it yeah it just goes against um i guess you've got to be highly motivated to put in a maximal effort and you don't want to be putting your athlete through that um you know every few days or especially or if they're week. if they're already super fatigued yeah you're not going to be yeah, you're not exactly going to get much right. useful training out of them otherwise yeah yeah so i guess that's what we want to do we want to be able to use either resting measures or responses to submaximal exercise to get some more information about our athletes and and you can just incorporate this sort of a test into a into a warm-up before a training session and you might do it say twice a week and have a look at how the data is trending over time Mm-hmm. But I guess if you're, you know, you made an excellent point about how obviously with improving fitness, your heart rate would recover faster as well. So then, yeah, exactly but right. I imagine that that process is, is more gradual than, than what you would call, you know, the, the acute response to overreaching. So maybe if you saw a, a rapid change in this heart rate recovery, that might be a signal of overreaching, whereas a more chronic or gradual change might be a response to improving, you know, uh, cardiovascular fitness. Would that be reasonable to assume? Yeah, spot on. Yeah, typically with overreaching, if you have, say, a two- or three-week block of increased training load, you might expect, um, you know, a number of athletes to be pushed into an overreaching state. Um, However, changes in fitness, at least with, you know, well-trained athletes, are probably going to be a little bit more gradual than that. Yeah. Um, And you might be looking at, you know, a change in heart rate recovery of up to eight to ten beats per minute. Um, in an overreached athlete, which is a pretty big change. So that's big. Um, I was going to ask you, yeah, what's the magnitude of the effect? Okay, that's good. So eight to 10 beats per minute. Yeah. And then I guess if you're employing these measures, you know, once or twice a week within the same athlete um, over a normal training period, then you can get an indication yourself as a coach or if you're looking at your own data as an athlete about what the normal variability for this particular measure is. And if the change is larger than that variability, then that might indicate that there's actually something going on and that might be a true effect mm-hmm. um, in response to an increase in training load. That's really interesting. We've um, we've talked a little bit about heart rate variability, which is a totally separate topic, but um, we had uh, Marco Altini, who was the HRV for training developer. Um, and he, one of the things that he said that, that stuck with me, and then I try to apply this principle to maybe <laughs> too many things, but, uh, he said, you want normal, right? You don't want high, you don't want low, you want normal. So what you were just saying kind of rings tr- about, um, tracking this HRR value rings true that if your normal range is whatever, but all of a sudden you're seeing, you know, a deviation from that normal, maybe that's your, that's your signal that, that there's some overreaching happening. Yeah, exactly right. You just need to understand the variability in whatever measure uh, you have 
And then I guess the other point that I touched on before, and I'll stress it again, is when you're performing these sorts of tests, you just need to make sure that it's in a really controlled environment. And we know other sure. things influence your heart rate. So if you're you know, doing this type of a test in the winter when you're really cold compared to at summer, or if you're doing it in the morning compared to the afternoon, mm-hmm. all of those things can influence your heart rate, what you've eaten before, have you had some caffeine and things like that. Sure. So I guess there are all other contextual factors um, that may increase the variability of a measure. So if you are going to employ this with your training, it might be good to do it at the same time each week, same time of the day when you're likely to be eating the same sorts of foods and things like that. That makes a ton of sense. So um, let's, there's there's also, I understand two types of overreaching. There's the, the functional overreaching and the non-functional. And uh, can you uh, uh, explain the difference between these two uh, physiological states? Yeah, so there was um, a bit of a consensus statement. Uh, this was published probably back in 2013, and it really defined these two different phases of overreaching. Uh, and it's really the time course of the decrement in performance okay. and the subsequent restoration or supercompensation that's used to distinguish between these different stages of that fitness fatigue continuum. And then we term those two stages of overreaching either functional overreaching, which is typically uh, considered to be good or could be beneficial for an athlete, Mm -hmm. and also non-functional overreaching. So those sort of sit next to each other on um, the two uh, or next to each other on that fitness fatigue continuum. And then further along on the right side of that, which we touched on before, was that overtraining syndrome. Okay. Um, So... I guess functional overreaching is a temporary decrement in performance and how it's defined as temporary is it's a decrement in performance for days or up to a two-week period. Okay, cool. And that occurs in response to a short-term period of, of overload training. Um, but as the definition suggests, with functional overreaching, you would typically see a supercompensation effect. So after a taper, your performance will increase. Right. Um, Whereas with non-functional overreaching, that's really, I guess, you could refer to that as a state of extreme overreaching. uh, And that can result from the continuation or extended periods of overload training or other factors may play a role if you're not, um, I guess, getting in enough energy to support your training and things like that. Right. And that can lead to a stagnation or even a decrease in performance which may not resume for several weeks or even months. Um, And as we've sort of touched on already, that overreaching classification system is really only based on the duration of time required for your performance to restore or reach supercompensation. Understood. So it's so it is a continuum. I, I now that yeah. makes sense when you said when when I first asked you the question, you said, "Oh, it's a continuum," and now yeah. that makes that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, um, we're not really sure if it's the type or duration of training stress or the degree of impairment um, of exercise performance that's really moderating uh, some of these states of of overreaching. And unfortunately, as we've already touched on. Uh, based on these definitions, we can really only classify athletes as functionally or non-functionally overreached after the fact, once we know whether their performance Mm -hmm. is restored. So that's one of the main limitations and and sort of one of the things that we're looking at, whether we can get markers of training stress that might be able to 
I guess, somewhat predict an athlete that might be heading down uh, one of those non-desirable pathways. Got it. Got it. Um, I have one last question about overreaching, and that is um, you hinted at this uh, earlier in our conversation, and I, I noticed that this in your study as well, that you're you're suggesting that um, fun- even functional overreaching may not be extremely desirable or, or necessary. And this kind of flies in the face, at least of the traditional supercompensation model that, you know, I learned when I first started learning about all this stuff that you do need a period of, of overreaching where you may see a decrease in performance, as you described, in order to achieve uh, supercompensation. But uh, you're seeing some work or you've done some work to suggest that that's not necessary, that you can have an athlete who's acutely fatigued, but not not overreaching can still achieve uh, that desirable supercompensation effect, right? Yeah. So um, I guess the first study that really uh, pricked our enthusiasm was published by uh, Jan Lemure in 2014. And in that particular study, they had a control group that just continued their normal training throughout the study period. Okay. And then they had an experimental group um, who performed a control block of training and then they had a three to four week increase in their training load uh, and then a four week taper period. And as you'd expect, the control group, their performance fluctuated a little bit uh, throughout the entire study period, but um, not substantially. Mm -hmm. And then in the experimental group, uh, there was quite a few athletes in this group and they're all well-trained triathletes. And after the three to four week increase in their training load, they brought the athletes back into the lab and uh, they performed an incremental uh, test. And those athletes that had a decrease in performance were classified as being overreached. Okay. And the other athletes that still came back into the lab, they had high perceptual fatigue, but they were still able to maintain their performance. And then they had that three to four week taper period afterwards and then they monitored their performance after each week of that taper and they actually found that uh, the athletes that were they classified as being acutely fatigued so they were able to maintain performance after the increase in training load but they still had high subjective fatigue Mm -hmm. they actually had substantially greater performance improvements after um, various points in that taper period compared to the overreached group And even after two to three weeks of the taper period, it was still this acutely fatigued group that had larger performance improvements. So even though all of these athletes experienced the same relative increase in their training load, it was those ones that could tolerate that increase in training load a little bit better uh, that were able to achieve greater uh, performance benefits. And they also saw um, larger performance improvements in their VO2 max, so their maximal oxygen mm-hmm. uptake, and that's arguably one of the important determinants of performance, not the only one, of course, but one of sure. the uh, important things that we can measure in the lab. So that sort of went against the current notion and I guess the term functional overreaching um, because... It's not as functional the, as we thought, maybe. Yeah, right? exactly right. And that sort of goes against the definition a little bit. But the reason they still classified them as being functionally overreached because their performance rebounded after a one to two week taper. So it wasn't chronically depressed. They just didn't right. see that super compensation that you might expect. 
or the super compensation was higher in the in the folks who never who never got there yeah, in the first place. Yeah, exactly right. But interestingly enough, that their their you know their perception, as you mentioned a couple of times now, their perception of effort during the you know this this bout of training for both groups increased. So training felt harder for for you know both the acutely fatigued folks and the functional overreach folks. Exactly right. So maybe there's some other contextual factors that aren't really included in some of these overreaching definitions. So. You know, are these athletes um, recovering a little bit better from training in this acutely fatigued group? So even though they're feeling the fatigue, they're just, I guess, managing to adapt a little bit better. Hmm. So then some follow-up studies from this group um, have looked at some other markers of training stress and recovery. And what they've found is that athletes that are functionally overreached also have poorer sleep during the overtraining period or in the increase in training load. Hmm. So we're not quite sure whether overreaching causes poor sleep <laughs> or disrupts your sleep or whether right. people that don't sleep very well during a period of overload training get pushed into this overreach state. Yep. And because sleep is probably one of the best forms of recovery along with nutrition, uh, those athletes just aren't recovering well enough. So there's a few other contextual factors that might play a pretty big role here. So I wonder if like sleep disruption could be a sign of, of, you know, some kind of overreaching functional or non-functional that if you're, again, if your normal sleep is pretty good, let's say, and then you're sleeping X hours a day. Um, and this is something I recommend for all folks to track at least by pen and paper or, or in their, you know, virtual training diaries, like training peaks. And then all of a sudden you're finding, uh, you know, not a, not a blip, not a one day disruption, but maybe like a multi-day continuous disruption in sleep could, you know, maybe that's a sign that, that things are going south. Yeah, exactly right. And, um, there's a nice, uh, review paper, uh, I believe the, the surname of the first author is La Stella. And that just sort of, that review paper just discusses that exact question where the sleep uh, can be used as an indicator of overreaching hmm. or whether overreaching may be a cause of disturbed sleep during those periods. So yeah, it's a really interesting debate. Cool. Interesting. And then I guess there are, there are, uh, there are other implications of, of being overreached too. You found, um, you know, uh, immunological implications as well. So certainly, you know, staying injury free and staying healthy is, is a key in being consistent in training and consistency is cited time and again as being the most important metric in, or the most important element of, of successful training. So obviously if you're sick or you're injured, you're not training, at least not training optimally. So if becoming overreached potentially has an impact there, that could have a, a real you know, detriment to the big picture. Yeah, exactly right. And there's uh, some other, I guess, negative implications that have been associated in some studies. So not all studies, but some studies have noted some other uh, cardiovascular um, implications for athletes where overreached athletes have a decrease in their stroke volume and also their maximal cardiac output hmm, okay. so we know that that is really important for training hard so when you want to have a uh, increase your training intensity you need to have all of these physiological parameters firing in order to train at a high intensity and some other studies have shown um, some various hormonal and, and metabolic consequences um, for example your resting metabolic rate uh, may decrease during a period of overreaching so that's basically, I guess, a surrogate measure of your energy metabolism at rest. Mm -hmm. And when that becomes disturbed, 
that can be associated with a, uh, I guess, a catabolic state. Uh, and that's also tied in with your energy availability too. Sure, and sure. they're factors that you really need uh, maximized in order to adapt to training. So we think that's really important. Awesome. Well, I think, uh, Phil, I think this is a great kind of uh, um, synopsis or primer for folks in, into into overreaching and uh, kind of pros and cons. It sounds like mostly cons <laughs> of that of that. <laughs> no, state. it's not all. It's not all bad. And um, you know, an equal number of studies have also shown some good super compensation effects. Okay. And I don't think we can confuse the message whereby athletes certainly need to train hard if they want to induce adaptations and improve their performance. So I don't think that message should ever be lost. It's just that with overreaching, there are a few other contextual factors that may moderate some of those performance responses. So I think that's important to note. Um, And the research at the moment is a little bit mixed. um, And we've sort of done some follow-up studies uh, where we've shown that in middle distance runners who are exposed to a period of, of overload training, and then a subsequent taper period, we did see a performance supercompensation effect in the overreached athletes. It was just that the performance supercompensation in the acutely fatigued athletes was greater um, compared to those overreached athletes. And we wanted to get a bit of a picture on whether that was associated with some superior adaptations. So we looked at a non-invasive measure of oxidative capacity in the muscle. So we can use a a device called a NIRS device. And we found that that um, measurement of muscle oxidative capacity was significantly increased in the athletes that were acutely fatigued and maintained through the taper period. But we didn't see an increase in that particular measure um, in the athletes that were overreached. So we think that um, there might be some other moderating factors, um, such as some of the adaptations in the muscle and also some of those factors that an athlete can control, uh, such as their dietary intake and sleep and things like that. Um, so it's not to say that athletes shouldn't train hard. They certainly should. But there are some other factors that um, yeah, should be considered during those periods of overload training. Got it. And that's that's a really important uh, a really important point, Phil. And also, I really like that you're you're creating your own segues here, which is is making my job as <laughs> as an interviewer here much much more straightforward. So you mentioned this <laughs> this technology for for studying the oxidative capacity of muscles, and uh, this leads us into part two of this conversation, and that is on uh, muscle muscle typing and uh, the implications of that in. Uh, in how we design our, our training programs and our, our interventions. So before we launch into it, um, for, for folks who are not maybe very familiar with the different muscle fiber types, can you give us a, a kind of a, a high-level summary of what they are and uh, how they influence performance? Yeah, sure. So I guess most athletes and coaches have heard of the term uh, muscle fiber type composition or muscle typology. And what that refers to is the ratio of type one and type two fibers or slow twitch and fast twitch muscle fibers that an individual has uh, in a given muscle. Okay. Um, with your type two fibers or your fast twitch fibers, you can further divide those into type two A fibers, which sometimes might be called a, an intermediate fiber and also type two X fibers, which are those really uh, fast glycolytic fibers. And there's a few uh, different 
methods in the laboratory uh, where you can distinguish these fibres. Um, and typically most of these methods require a muscle biopsy, which is okay. typically quite a large needle uh, that gets uh, inserted uh, through an incision in the skin and into a prominent muscle, typically in the leg you might take a muscle biopsy from the vastus lateralis, which is one of the knee extensor muscles on the outside of the thigh, mm-hmm. uh, or sometimes one of the calf muscles, so the, the gastrocnemius, which is that superficial calf muscle. And then what a researcher might do is take that muscle biopsy, which is a bundle of maybe 300 muscle fibres, and they'll take that into the lab and they'll um, either analyse some of the contractile proteins that are in the muscle or they might perform some different uh, technical methodologies to determine whether uh, you have a fast or a slow twitch fibre. But the gold standard in terms of uh, determining your muscle fibre type composition from a muscle biopsy is identifying what's called the uh, myosin heavy chain isoform. So that's just a type of contractile protein. Okay. And that and that isoform has different uh, types or different isoforms. And uh, I guess each one of those isoforms is a characteristic of whether it's a fast or slow twitch fibre because typically that's the actual contractile protein in the muscle and that can contract really uh, quickly and powerfully like it does in a fast twitch fibre, mm-hmm. but that, that would typically have a greater fatigability, so it fatigues a bit quicker. Or that MHC isoform in a type 1 fibre might not be able to contract as quickly or produce as much power, but it has a greater fatigue resistance. And that's what we see in uh, type one or slow twitch fibers. So having done a biopsy like this, which is sounds pretty uncomfortable and invasive, to be honest, um, you get, you wh- what is it What is it that you get? You get a, a relative percentage of the, the, the muscle types in yeah. the particular muscle group, is that right? Yeah, so what you might do is perform a, a staining technique and then you might have say two or 300 fibres, the different fibres would stain a different Mm colour and then you essentially would count up how many type 1 fibres you have relative to type 2 fibres and then you can convert that into a percentage. So in a lot of the research, you might see a given muscle have a fibre type percentage of 73% type 1 or slow twitch fibres and that just means that out of those fibres that were counted and stained, 73% 73% of them are type 1 muscle fibres. Um, and that each muscle within your body has or may differ with the given fibre type. Um, so you've got muscles uh, like a, a deep muscle in the calf known as the soleus, mm-hmm. which is more of a fatigue-resistant type muscle. So typically within a given individual, that might have a higher proportion of type 1 fibres. Hmm, oh, if you compare that to the gastrocnemius, which is, I guess, a little bit more of an explosive or global muscle, and that particular muscle might have a higher proportion of type 2 fibres, at least relative to the soleus. Um, The important thing to note is that if a given individual has uh, more type 1 fibres than the average population in one muscle, that would typically hold true for other muscles within the body of that given individual. Hmm. So even though there's variability between muscles, there almost appears to be an across-muscle phenotype. So if one individual has more slow-twitch muscles in one muscle, that would typically hold true for uh, other muscles within their uh, body. 
Okay. So then uh, what what is uh, knowing the relative percentage of type 1 and type 2 muscles, what does that do for us as as either endurance athletes or, or endurance athlete coaches? Yeah, well, I guess the main reason we're interested in uh, fiber type came from some really classical studies in the 1970s and 1980s from Dave Costill and other researchers. And they found that uh, athletes from different disciplines within a given sport had very different uh, fibre type compositions. So, for example, if you take elite endurance runners, they're going to have a much higher proportion of type 1 muscle fibres, possibly as high as 90% type 1 muscle fibres. There is a lot of variability between people. And then if you look at sprint runners, they may have um, a much higher proportion of type 2 or fast twitch muscle fibres. And then when you look within a given discipline, there is some evidence to show that, uh, for example, with endurance athletes, very top-level, international-level endurance runners have a much higher proportion of type 1 fibres than their sub-elite counterparts. Sure. So we know that fibre composition could be deterministic within which discipline or sport you should specialise in, but then also within a given discipline it might be deterministic um, with training status. And that really just comes down to the different characteristics of those fibres as I touched on before. Um, you know, we know type 2 fibres can produce more power but they fatigue a little bit quicker, uh, whereas type 1 fibres have more fatigue resistance um, but they can't produce as much power or contract as quickly. Um, is the type two fibers. Okay. So that, that makes sense in, in kind of the, the rarefied air of elite athletics, but for the, uh, the rest of us, the ones that are, you know, training, <laughs> training for an Ironman or something, or, you know, just trying to, trying to be an active, uh, endurance, uh, endurance athlete in our spare time. Uh, how does knowing this, and we'll get to the question of how to determine it, uh, in a little while, yeah, but, sure. um, how does knowing your relative, uh, distribution, affect the way you maybe should be training is there is there any guidance on that front yes yeah, so i've sort of touched on um, how it might be used from a, a talent id perspective or i guess which sport or event you might be best off specializing in mm -hmm. but there's lots of sports where you have a really big diversity in the athlete profile so this might be middle distance events um, where you might get a middle distance runner who's more of a sort of, I guess, an endurance phenotype yeah. or a middle distance runner that has a little bit more speed. And then I guess the other key point is that if you are training for an event, um, how you respond to training might also be related to your fiber type composition. Okay. So if you've got an athlete with more of an endurance phenotype, they're obviously going to respond to a given block of training a little bit differently compared to if you've got more of a uh, fast twitch individual or more of an explosive athlete. So there's a few nuances to this one and there's not actually a lot of research out there at the moment on how athletes with different fibre type composition might respond to training. Okay. And a big reason for that is that, as we touched on before, uh, it's not exactly an enjoyable experience having a muscle biopsy. <laughs> no, it taken, does not sound like one. Taken from your leg. Um, so we've done um, a few studies at our university um, where we've really just tried to validate some other non-invasive techniques to determine muscle fibre type composition. And we took biopsies from the medial head of the gastrocnemia, so that superficial calf muscle. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, some of the guys were, you know, had a sore calf for, you know, seven, eight, nine days and oh, they couldn't wow. train for a little bit. Um, if you don't like the sight of needles, then this needle will send you running in the opposite direction. <laughs> They're quite large needles. And obviously, certainly dealing with the technical aspect, if you take a muscle biopsy, lots of funds and resources and technical expertise is required to uh, perform these laboratory techniques to actually determine your fibre type composition. And I guess the other key point is when you're only extracting two to 300 muscle fibres, there can be quite a, a large variability depending upon where in the muscle you take that biopsy from. Hmm. And you should really take two or three biopsies to get enough information and <laughs> oh, reduce goodness. some of that variability. <laughs> so I guess that's probably one of the reasons why there's some limited research uh, in this space uh, using the biopsy technique and trying to individualise training from that perspective, which is why you know coaches and athletes would often try and use surrogate measures uh, to get an estimate of the the fiber composition of their athletes. Okay, let's talk about some of those because um, certainly I don't think that there's there's much appetite or probably not even a ton of facilities that'll do it for you, at least not around where I live. Um, and certainly not much of an appetite on the, you know, the recreational athlete population to have a giant needle shoved up, shoved in their calf in order to to quantify muscle type. So what are some of the non-invasive techniques? What's What's going on there? Yeah, so talking with uh, coaches and athletes, and you might get uh, track or, or team sport um, coaches using different performance metrics to estimate the fibre composition of athletes. So they might mm -hmm. use maybe peak sprinting speed or cycling coaches might use uh, peak sprinting power or maybe a torque cadence or power cadence profile right. to estimate. But I guess the two major limitations with using physical performance tests is that these tests are malleable to training and maturation. So using them with athletes of a younger age, um, the outcome measures, so peak power and things like that, um, obviously if you perform a specific training program, you're going to probably increase your peak power or some of these other outcome measures. Yeah. And using them with athletes of a younger age, so, you know, 12, 13, 14 years of age, who you're certainly not going to get a biopsy from. Yeah. But that's where the um, maturation level um, is so variable. So I don't think using these from a talent ID perspective uh, is going to be that, um, I guess, specific or precise. And I guess the other key point is that there are also other or multiple um, physiological factors that limit, say, sprint performance whereby muscle volume might be important. Um, the architecture of the muscle could also influence your peak sprinting speed or power. Sure. So I guess trying to use those outcome measures, which are determined by a broad range of factors to estimate one specific factor, such as muscle fiber type composition, um, probably just doesn't have the sensitivity. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I guess, given that uh, fiber type composition could be related to measures of fatigue or repetitions to failure. Um, those tests might also be used by coaches in the gym. But I guess the correlation with those measures of performance and proportion of a given fiber type will only ever be moderately strong as well. So I don't think those measures are, are sensitive enough either. Um, and that's probably because they're also determined by um, a whole host of different factors uh, as well. Um, I guess some other uh, performance or physiological measures uh, that can be used 
Um, so you may have heard of the power duration relationship in sure. cycling, so yep. critical power and um, this other metric that we don't know too much about, but that being uh, W prime are also used. And <laughs> It is a bit a of a mystery of, metric, isn't it? <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah, we're still trying to get to the bottom of that one. Bit, it's a little that bit bizarre. Another podcast. Yeah, no, yeah, totally. I'd love to have you on to talk about that because that one's uh, – <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. Philip Skibba's work is obviously like it's it's it's, yeah, it's hugely exactly important, right. yeah. but it's uh, yeah, it's it's not as as far as I'm concerned, super well understood. Anyway, that's a topic for another show, as you say. Yeah, we certainly know a little bit more about critical power. Yes, um, and I think a couple of studies now um, have shown some pretty strong correlations between critical power and how many type one or slow twitch fibers you have, but. Similar to those other points, critical power is also determined by many other um, parameters and it's influenced by training as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you could use that to predict or estimate fiber type composition despite it being associated with your proportion of, of type 1 fibers. So what you're telling us is that, yeah, there's not there's not much by way of field testing that we can uh, that we can Yeah, do I guess you can get this. a bit of an insight about whether an athlete might be explosive or more of an endurance phenotype. But I guess using that information to actually predict their fiber type composition, I think, is probably just too much of a of a stretch. Right, right. Certainly, maybe not something that you want to base, you know, training decisions or planning around. Yeah, maybe not. I just think there's probably too many moving parts um, in terms of what determines some of those performance outcomes. Sure, so sure. they just don't have the sensitivity, despite being associated with fiber type composition. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, but you've uh, you've uh, been using a technique in your lab that is non-invasive, but does give uh, a validated um, uh, measurement of of the phenotype. Yeah, so we've been doing some research here at Griffith University. Uh, much of that research is done with one of my colleagues, Associate Professor Claire Minahan. Okay, and we collaborate with uh, a team at Ghent University. Uh, where we've been employing a non-invasive technique to estimate the muscle typology of athletes. And this technique has really been pioneered by Professor Wim DeRave, who leads a team of researchers at Ghent University. And we've been working with them quite closely to apply this technique with elite athletes. Um, So the technique itself involves the non-invasive measurement of a muscle metabolite which is called carnosine. Okay, yep. So that's in quite high concentrations in uh, human skeletal muscle. And we think that it's a pretty good candidate for the estimation of muscle fiber type because its concentration is twofold higher in your type 2 or fast twitch fibers. And we can measure this non-invasively by using an MRI scan and then applying a pretty technical uh, technique known as proton magnetic resonance spectroscopy. Uh, try saying that fast three times. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's still it's still and, better than a uh, than a muscle biopsy, I think. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so that just requires an athlete to lie on an MRI scanner for about 20 minutes. And okay. we can measure the carnosine in various muscles of the lower limb. And we mainly focus on measuring it in the uh, medial head of the gastrocnemius, but we can also measure it in other muscles of the lower limb. Okay, yep. And the reason that we think it's a pretty good candidate in addition to being uh, in different concentrations in those two different fiber types is the fact that it's also quite stable in response to different uh, training regimes as well as most dietary uh, strat or changes in diet. 
Oh, interesting. Uh, we do know that beta alanine supplementation will increase muscle carnosine. So that's one of the, I guess, limitations or exclusion criteria that we need to have for athletes that are going to have this measurement done. Um, and I guess the final, uh, I guess, advantage of this technique overtaking a, a biopsy is that it provides a much larger representation of the muscle compared to the muscle biopsy. So when you take a biopsy, as I mentioned before, you're getting about two to 300 fibres. And that uh, amount of muscle would represent probably less than 0.01% of that actual muscle that you're studying. Right. Whereas uh, we would typically look at around about 15 mils of muscle using this spectroscopy technique. And that would represent roughly 5 to 10% hmm. of the muscle that you're trying to study. So we get so a really good measure of yeah representativity of that particular muscle because your fiber type composition can differ between superficial and deep portions of the muscle as well as along the line of the muscle as well. Okay. So I think it's really important to sample quite a large uh, portion of the muscle if you want to get a good representation of the fiber composition of that muscle. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, and I'm going to ask you in a in a minute about what your findings are of the of that study that you conducted. But before we do that, um, you mentioned that um, this uh, this measurement that you're taking is not sensitive to the type of training that the athlete has been doing. And so my question there is: we we hear a little bit about that that type two A muscle fiber type that you mentioned. Um, sometimes behaving like an intermediate muscle where it can mm. be where it has it can have more fatigue resistance or you can it can be trained rather to have more fatigue resistance so yeah. um, is is your is this new technique um, is it able to pick out you know an increase in type 2a muscle fibers or their or their function as a, as a result of you know a specific training intervention to make them behave more like type 1 muscle fibers yes that's a great question I think um, just in terms of, I guess, how fixed an individual's fibre typology is. The conversion between type 2X, which are those, which is really that uh, fast glycolytic type 2 fibre, yeah. and the conversion to type 2A fibres can be quite malleable to training. Okay. And that seems to occur in some cases somewhat rapidly, so within weeks. Oh, interesting. Um, we can okay. get conversion between type 2X and type 2A fibres and vice versa. But from most of the research that we look at over the last sort of 30 years, it seems that the conversion between type 1 and type 2 fibres seems to be uh, almost impermissible, or at least we can't really pick up a lot of those changes. So extreme changes in fibre type don't seem to be too realistic, at least in the moderate or short to moderate term. Okay. Um, however, changes within those type 2 subtypes can uh, occur quite rapidly in response uh, to training. Right. So, so you may have uh, a whole bunch of type 2X fibers converting to type 2A and behaving behaving more like type 1s, even though they're, you know, maybe physiologically not quite type 1s or not at all like type Yeah, 1s. exactly right. Yeah. Um, we often refer to type 1 fibers as being those slow twitch or oxidative fibers. But interestingly, type uh, 2A fibers uh, can reach... I guess, the same level of oxidative capacity as type 1 fibres. Uh -huh, um, cool. And that was shown in some interesting studies over the last few years for some uh, researchers uh, in Denmark, and they study the muscle of some really elite cross-country skiers. 
and they're taking biopsies from the upper muscles of the upper body and the deltoid and muscle of the lower body and they really actually show quite similar levels of oxidative capacity hmm. in type 2 A fibres compared to type 1 fibres. But we still think that type 1 fibres are likely to be a little bit more uh, efficient than type 2 A fibres, which still fits in with that profile. Um, and I guess just getting back to your question before, with our measurement, we provide a um, the measurement of carnosine and then from that particular measurement, we or the original validation study uh, that was published back in uh, 2011, um, it's really just providing an estimation of the proportion of type 2 fibres. So we can't really differentiate Got between it. type 2A and 2X fibres, but given that they do change um, in response to training, it's probably more so beneficial just getting a, uh, a measure of overall type 2 fibre composition. Uh, given that you can get those changes in response to training quite rapidly between the type two subtypes. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So then the folks who, who would have, let's say folks who are training for, you know, ultra endurance or long distance stuff like marathon running and, and are you know, long distance triathlon, if they are found to have higher concentration of type two fibers, it's obviously in their benefit to convert as many of them as possible into the type two A's. Um, so then that would, that would guide the training. Yeah, exactly right. And that would typically um, occur in response to endurance training or even doing uh, a lot of the studies that uh, measure changes in fibre type composition in response to resistance training using sort of moderate to high rep ranges also show uh, changes from type 2X to 2A. Mm -hmm. And it's really in those extremely explosive athletes um, such as uh, Olympic uh, weightlifters and also pure sprinters that have type 2x fibers they're actually quite uncommon in most individuals right right because they i guess they'd have to be trained too like they're there's they probably can go either way right like 2x into 2a and 2a into 2x depending on the training yeah yeah exactly right so in a lot of the biopsy studies you actually um may not even pick up any type 2x fibers they're actually hard to find unless you've got a pure sprint type athlete Got it. Um, so in, in the study that you guys conducted uh, where you looked at the middle distance runners and um, related their relative percentage of type 2 versus type 1 muscle fiber types, what did you find out uh, in terms of their response to uh, acute training load increases? You back, Kind of looping back to our conversation on overreaching. Yeah, so going back to the overreaching and um, we're obviously quite interested in that area and the individual responses to training and we thought that some of those individual responses to training may be due to uh, between athlete variability in their fiber type composition. Mm -hmm. So in this particular study, we recruited middle distance runners because we thought that was an appropriate athlete group where we might see quite a bit of diversity in their fiber typology. Okay. So we had 24 uh, pretty well-trained middle distance runners participate in that study. So the average uh, season PB for the for the males, they're all um, or on average sub four minute, 1500 meter guys. So nice. certainly not um, uh, world class, but they were quite well trained. And we also had eight females in the study as well. Um, the study period lasted uh, seven weeks and we divided that into three different training phases. So all the runners completed uh, three weeks of their normal coach-prescribed training where we monitored uh, all of their training sessions with 
heart rate monitor, GPS watch, and then also some perceptual training diaries as well. Mm -hmm. And then after that three-week block, we use that as a bit of a template to increase their training volume specifically in a stepwise manner over the next three-week period. Okay. So in that first week of the overload period, we increase their volume from each session by 10%, mm-hmm. 20% in the second week, and then 30% uh, in the third week. So, so 30% you know, in the third week over the baseline, right? So it's not like it's not 30% over second week. Yeah, over the baseline, yeah. Right. Um, so week three in that high volume phase represented week three in that normal control phase. But yeah, for some of the guys that are, um, you know, had a training volume of up around 95 to 100 uh, kilometers per week. Wow. You know, yeah. a 30% increase is pretty substantial. <laughs> That's, that um, would be huge. Yeah. So some of these guys were coming back into the lab very fatigued after that period. And then we had um, a pretty big reduction in their training volume for the one week taper. So we used a exponential reduction mm-hmm. um, of 55% of their volume from week three of that overload period. Okay. And we chose that model of a taper uh, just because if you are going to use a reasonably short taper, so seven days, then an exponential reduction where you drop a lot of the training volume over the first few days of that taper uh, has shown to be probably the most effective method for a short uh, duration taper. Right. And then, yeah, so before and after each one of those training phases, the the runners came into the lab and we did um, a whole host of of measurements. Uh, We looked at their body composition with a DEXA scan. Um, We performed a resting metabolic rate assessment. So this was first thing in the morning when they were well rested. And then we did some sub-maximal and maximal running tests as well so we could um, see how their uh, performance had changed, but then also so we could have a look at some of those sub-maximal responses to, to exercise as well. And then touching on that overreaching um, portion from earlier on, mm-hmm. um, after that overload training period, so the second three-week block, we, based on their change in performance, we characterised them as being either overreached. So if they had a decrease in performance that was larger than our um, variation in the actual test itself, We classified them as being overreached. Or if they came back into the lab and were able to maintain their performance within that variation, uh, then we classified them as being acutely fatigued because they um, all came back into the lab with elevated levels of of fatigue from their training diaries. And uh, out of the 24 runners, uh, 12 of them were classified as being overreached and then the other 12 as being um, acutely fatigued. Mm Mm-hmm. And what we found after the taper period is that both of those groups improved their running performance. So on average... So there was super compensation in both groups. Yeah, there was in both groups. But what we found was that um, the acutely fatigued group had a substantially larger improvement when compared to that functionally overreached group. Um, So we found that that was quite interesting. So, um, you know, despite both groups on average um, having an increase in performance after the taper, the increase was larger in that acutely fatigued group. Okay. And that um, related back to uh, some of those changes in oxidative capacity. So this is another non-invasive technique that we've got up and running in our lab. And uh, that particular technique uses... Um, a device known as near-infrared spectroscopy. So that's okay. a different type of spectroscopy. <laughs> yeah. 
And we use that technique to estimate the muscle oxidative capacity. And we found that that particular measure was only increased in the acutely fatigued group after that uh, overload period. And that increase was maintained after the taper. But when we looked at the overreached group, uh, they uh, didn't have any change in their oxidative capacity mm. in the muscle. And we think that that's a really important uh, physiological measure that might relate to those changes in performance as well. Oh, interesting. And how did this, uh, how did their, um, the, the fact that their, whether or not they became overreached or if they were just acutely fatigued, how did that relate to their uh, muscle phenotypes? Yeah, so what we found was that uh, the runners who became overreached had a greater estimated proportion of type 2 muscle fibers compared mm-hmm. to those that were in the acutely fatigued group. And then we're also interested in seeing if we could explain uh, some of the variability in those performance responses. So even though both groups did improve after the taper, there was quite a large variability in the magnitude of performance improvement. Right. Um, So what we found was that runners with a greater estimated proportion of type 1 muscle fibres, they were able to maintain their performance in response to the overload training period. And we found a pretty strong correlation between the change in performance from pre to post overload training period and their fibre type composition, Hmm. such that those athletes with more type 1 fibres were able to tolerate that increase in training load a little bit better. But then they also achieved a greater performance supercompensation after the taper period. So that strong association was also evident when you look at the change in performance from before the high volume period to after the taper period. So even after a taper period, we're seeing greater performance responses in those middle distance runners with a greater estimated proportion of type 1 muscle fibres. I guess that comes back to um, our actual training intervention where we increase the volume quite substantially for runners and we increased it uh, within each session. So it's not like we just increased the amount of long, slow distance training they were doing. The actual uh, content of each training session relative to that three-week control period was the same. So if they were doing a track session on a Saturday um, and they were doing, say, uh, repeat 800-meter efforts, then we'd be increasing the volume or the number of repetitions in line with that given week of the the volume period. Yeah, I follow. Okay. Yeah, so we tried to maintain training intensity but purely focus on increases in in training volume. Got it. So would there, you know, would it be reasonable to assume then if you and we <laughs> and when we're talking about muscle fiber types, we we haven't arrived at a non-lab, non-invasive uh, field test for for you know kind of a DIY way of of, proto- of uh, phenotyping yourself. Um, but if you did know this, you know, your relative percentage of of type one versus type two, then you you know would it be reasonable to start concluding that maybe for the the folks that have more of the type two than high volume training, maybe isn't the, isn't the best way to go for, for you? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that's probably our next step. Um, so, so far we've seen some different responses from those athletes, but then how do we take that information and actually use it to individualize training, which is probably, um, a bigger scope, uh, where we can apply this research and help out coaches and athletes. Right. Right. And in particular, uh, 
high and, and low mileage athletes and who responds best is, as you'd probably be aware, a very topical debate, um, particularly with triathletes and, and middle distance runners and, and all endurance athletes really. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, high mileage has really been the theme of most middle and long distance uh, running coaching and exceptions to that have been pretty rare. Agreed. Partly, partly because coaches haven't really dared to go against that trend and partly because for, say, professional long-distance runners such as marathon runners, um, with all day to train, like mileage is typically the answer <laughs> and you can't get away from mileage when you're, you know, training for an event that is going to take more than two hours. But I think middle-distance running is one discipline where you do have athletes with very different profiles and also in recreational athletes yeah, um, who, you know, might be, might be pushed towards, um, you know, triathlons of different uh, distances, but they're certainly going to have very diverse profiles as well and they aren't going to respond to training the same way. So, you know, there's no doubt that a certain level of mileage is going to be a non-negotiable for any, um, you know, recreational athlete competing in an endurance event. Yep. But the amount of mileage that maximizes performance is going to be different um, between some of these athletes. And I guess specifically for the middle distance runner, uh, I think there's probably three key ways you could use this information to individualize training a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And number one might be reducing volume of the long run for some athletes. So a lot of the middle distance runners might go out for a long run on a Sunday. Right. And it might be anywhere between 18 and 25 Ks. So some athletes are going to respond quite well to that. Whereas if you've got an athlete with a higher proportion of type two muscle fibers, there might be some residual fatigue for two to three days from a run like that. And those fibers are more un, uh, unlikely to adapt favorably to that type of a session. Yeah. So then suddenly they're becoming fatigued for the next quality session that they want to perform which might even be Tuesday morning. And I just don't think the value of a, of a long run of that duration or distance um, is going to be or evoke favourable responses. I guess the other way you could individualise training is uh, alter the distribution of sessions across a week. Okay. So uh particularly for athletes with more type 2 fibres, they can't perform two quality sessions uh, in as okay. close succession as an athlete with more type one fibers. Because they need more um, recovery time have. in between the sessions. Exactly right. So you need to be a little bit smarter about the distribution of sessions across the week. Interesting. And then I guess lastly, um, I would suggest that individualizing the content of quality track sessions could be important. So let's just say um, you might have a session which is going to be interval based and uh, you might have athletes with um, quite a bit of diversity in their um, phenotype. One athlete might respond quite well to maybe eight by 1K reps with a short recovery, let's just say 60 seconds recovery in between. So even though the intensity is quite high, there's not too much recovery in between repetitions. An athlete with a high proportion of type 2 muscle fibres, let's just say the focus of that session is on um, building endurance however there's many different ways to do that sure. so they may that they might be better off having either longer recovery or slightly shorter repetitions you might have repeat 800 meter efforts 
uh, but with, say, two minutes recovery in between repetitions. Mm-hmm. And they may respond to that session a little bit more, but uh, these are just some uh, ideas that I have. We've got to really, we've got to actually perform these studies next. Sure. Well, um, listen, this you've uh, Phil, you've given me a ton to think about, both as a, kind of like a, <laughs> uh, an armchair physiologist, but also as a, also as a coach. I think this is um, I'm thinking of you know myself, but also some of the folks I work with. I'm like, oh yeah, maybe that's what was going on here. And I mean, you know, the kind of the onus is on you guys to develop and <laughs> either a field test for this, for, for phenotyping yeah. <laughs> or, or a, uh, or an inexpensive device for us to, you know, tech nerds to sink a few dollars in and, and, and do some testing on people to say, you know, the, you're, you're going to benefit, you're more likely to benefit from this style of training versus this style of training. Yeah, exactly. Right. We're just trying to make your job a little bit better, <laughs> but um, yeah. to be honest, a lot of the research that comes out with athletes is we're probably just confirming some of the information that you guys have been prescribing for the last 20 or 30 years. So you guys might be ahead of us in, in many respects. It's funny that you mentioned that because I, um, I, you know, when I was first starting, I didn't know anything. I was very much on the, you know, the upslope <laughs> of the Dunning-Kruger curve. And I was, uh, I was like, well, I gotta, you know, I gotta beat these people up. And then as, as I've gotten a little bit older and, you know, maybe a little bit wiser, hopefully, um, I, the most success I've had with folks is when we've never gotten to the point of like, you know, a, you know, maybe there's been some acute fatigue, but I've been trying to steer folks away from that state as much as I can of performance decline, which, you know, now I can say that's overreaching. Yeah. That's, that's the, the definition, whether or not it was functional or non-functional, <laughs> just from a, from a perspective of a, especially like, um, you know, a, a recreational athlete who has a job and a family and a million other stressors outside of training and training may not be the, well, it's not going to be the number one priority um, for those folks probably, you know, staying away from overreaching may be a more sustainable long-term strategy for success in their sport. Yeah, exactly right. And then um, there's no doubt that, you know, periods of increased training load, such as a training camp or if, Mm -hmm. you know, recreational athletes might have some uh, recreation leave from their job for a few weeks so they've got more time to train, which is fine. But then I guess you've just got to pay more attention to some of those other factors so you know maybe increasing their energy intake and things like that and paying attention to sleep as well yeah and if they are on uh, vacation then hopefully they can get in some r&r as well and help recover from those training sessions a little bit more too for sure phil this has been awesome really a really interesting conversation and one i think that uh, our listeners will will take something away from even if there is no kind of like <laughs> fix or, or magic test that they can take to figure out what their their muscle fiber types are so thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to join us today no worries Michael. pleasure to be on and um always great to chat to, to coaches and get a bit of an insight from that perspective as well so pleasure to be on and um, hopefully everyone enjoys the chat yeah i'm sure they will uh listeners thank you very much as always for tuning in Uh, If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends, recommend us, uh, give us a five-star review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to us and uh, take a couple minutes to actually write a review because that helps even more than the rating. As always, uh, thank you very much for tuning in and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye.